The Unexpected Cosmology, Episode 9. The AIDS Pandemic is a Hoax, Part 1. The Brutality of Psychodrama. AIDS isn't a disease, but a business of fear. It's also a hoax, the purposes of which are alchemical. Disclaimer. I am not a doctor and have never stepped foot into a medical institution. Thank ya. Therefore, if my conclusions bother your worldview, then there are a million other media narratives to choose from in the politically engineered left versus right paradigm. Every official telling will undoubtedly be backed by the World Health Organization and Centers for Disease Control. They are hellbent on keeping big pharma erect, which means keeping you drugged up and on the respirator. We live in a time where it can be truly said that those who disagree with the government are wrong. And yet, here you are, peeping over the forbidden wall from the wildly populated highway to the narrow road of existence. You have stumbled upon this episode for one reason or another, and here we meet. Perhaps you are really searching and don't even know it yet. Time will tell. This will be a two-part paper. Absolute proof that there is no connection to be had between the HIV virus and AIDS will not be discussed fully until the following report. What that essentially means is, I will first make claims with a certain degree of competence, never thinking to back them up until the following report. You will have to wait around until next time. Asking why I write in the order that I do is a question best reserved for a shrink, and I absolutely despise lying down on couches, unless it's to take a nap. So let's get to it then. I highly suggest you first read my short paper, Germ Theory is a Hoax, because it lays the groundwork and I don't care to be repetitive. There will be no beating about the bush this time around. The first question we need to ask is this. What is AIDS? The World Health Organization, Center for Disease Control, and Food and Drug Administration certainly have an answer for you, but it is not the right one. HIV, a human immunodeficiency virus, can pass on from one person to another through sexual contact or blood transfusion, and once that happens, the infected person is destined to suffer from an illness called AIDS until they eventually die of AIDS. Only Big Pharma will prolong their life. Ridiculous. There is umbrage which needs taken with that definition. Umbrage. <laughs> Aside from not being a disease, AIDS isn't even something new. It is simply a new name given to a collection of already familiar illnesses. Pneumonia, tuberculosis, diarrhea, cancer, but the axiom we have all been raised with, HIV equals AIDS equals death, is a far more brilliant business model. The medical industry has trained everyone like a good pooch to protest opinions such as my own on the skewed belief that I am feeding people false information, when in fact our slave masters don't want to be exposed. People end up murdering their entire family and then shooting themselves with a second unidentified gun for writing papers such as these. So, I know what I'm going up against. Satan. 
No, I am not worried in the least that you'll read an article on Snopes which disproves yet another one of my opinions, or that the woman holding the syringe says her indoctrination, scratch that, education, proves otherwise. Fact check is just another 1984 term for outing Ministry of Truth dissenters. I simply choose to disbelieve the official narrative, and you can too. We are talking once again about alchemy and psychodrama, but where to even begin? I have much to say and so many questions. Questions like, why does any web search on the AIDS pandemic in the 1980s produce almost nothing but black and white photographs? I seem to recall my childhood having color. Even the hippies managed to pull off tie-dye in the 60s. Is it the Mandela effect? No, it is not. <laughs> I happened to learn the trade of photography in a dark room while attending community college, but that was decades ago now. Still, I learned something. Perhaps they are simply trying to remove any distraction by helping the viewer focus on the subject, the textures, shapes and patterns, and the composition. That's, <laughs> That's probably it. In short, we are viewing a documentary. AIDS is a personal topic in my household, and that is because I met my wife in high school and sometime in the 80s, while she was still in kindergarten, her mother died due to complications from the HIV virus. Again, that is the CDC-approved account of history, by which my wife's mother is an unknown, and so for the moment, we shall run with it. She died due to complications resulting from AIDS. Remember now, nobody actually dies of AIDS. They die due to complications from AIDS. And there's a difference. FYI, her story involves Jerry Falwell. We are dealing with a hoax of global proportions, wherein the Earth spins through a vacuum of space, and vaccines actually work rather than poison. It was the 80s, and Rebecca Carmen fell victim to the hype. Therefore, we shall follow the breadcrumbs laid out for us and then, as we often do here at Cosmology, come around full circle. One of the first names that comes up in AIDS documentaries, as linear timelines go, is somebody named Larry Kramer, aka Lawrence David Kramer. This should tell us something. Kramer had a part in the opening ceremonies. For the record, I watched the AIDS documentary on Netflix before deciding to write this paper and Kramer was featured in it. The episode was part of their The 80s miniseries, put out by CNN, so I had to starve off all sorts of indoctrination, <laughs> packaged in the glittering bows and wrapping paper of nostalgia. I decided to look into Kramer a little closer and report my findings here. The CNN documentary opens up with vintage video footage of San Francisco, mostly of men in thick, bristly mustaches walking in tight pants. We are told it is the gay paradise capital of the world and then quickly given statistics. For example, it is 1980, the very year I was born. As one decade gave way to another, the statistical estimate of homosexuals had ranged from 12 to 25% of San Francisco's total population, with the average gay man having sexual encounters with at least 500 other men 28% with more than a thousand. Mind you, we are dealing with statistics. Whether truth or fiction, I am not the person shuffling the deck. 
These are simply the cards dealt to us. So, statistics it is. Gay men were eating lots and lots and lots and lots of ham sandwiches, and they regularly forsook the seventh-day Sabbath because they had no love for the law of Yahuwah as prescribed in Torah. Also, the CIA PSYOP that was Hayden Ashbury was no longer the standard for America's love revolution. In 1980, the Castro had won that title. Never before in the history of the modern world had sex been more readily available than San Francisco, statistically speaking. In other news, it may be argued that the Satanic Panic officially began that very year, in 1980. Actors Anton LaVey and Charlie Manson had certainly already sent evangelical skin-crawling in a bygone decade. But the publication of Michelle Remembers, a book co-written by Canadian psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder and his former patient, then wife, Michelle Smith, kicked those wheels into motion. The book detailed her childhood abuse by a cabal of Satanists and the demonic possession which resulted from it. We will not comment upon the Satanic Panic further here, except to say that I find the symbiosis between that and AIDS interesting, to say the least. I've written something on the Satanic Panic in the past. You can find it on Cosmology, the day E.T. visited the U.N., the point I'm trying to make here is that the plot to Michelle Remembers was predictive programming for something much larger, as in all of engineered society. While the satanic panic itself has all the markings of yet another spook operation, carefully crafted by the likes of Geraldo Rivera and Oprah Winfrey. I have just given you two names, and there are connections to be made here between the parallel paths of the AIDS pandemic and satanic panic. It is precisely why I brought the matter up, but I'll let you do the digging. Back to the documentary. On July 5, 1981, the CDC noted a rare and deadly form of cancer in 41 homosexual men. Why is the number 41 a red flag? Because the news is being created before our very eyes, but the media also likes to code things for those with woken eyes. 41 is 14 in reverse. 14 shows the principle of periodic mutations in the cosmic individuality. With 14, the cycle is in the individual, but in 41, the individual is in the cycle. Listen to that again as much as you'd like. Darwinian evolution is so stupid. Germ theory only works if mutations happen. Just this very moment, I wiped my fingers across the keyboard and stuck them in my mouth. I'll probably catch a virus and die. Ridiculous. Anyhow, in as little as a few years, Dr. Jesse Peel, a gay community organizer, psychiatrist in Atlanta, and a philanthropist, stick a red flag on that one, claimed to have found himself attending as many as two or three funerals for friends in a single week. It's in the documentary. Peel was losing more of his contemporaries, he noted, than his aging mother. Before the AIDS pandemic even had a name, one thing became absolutely certain in the CIA-owned media. Gay men in New York and San Francisco were dying. New York and San Francisco. Bookmark those two cities. There is a reason why so many people reportedly died in both places, but it's not for the reason that you probably think. Before this is over, you shall see why AIDS has nothing to do with it. Now that we have laid some basic groundwork, 
Back to Larry Kramer. The Wikipedia introduces Lawrence David Kramer with the following description. He was an American playwright, author, film producer, public health advocate, and LGBT rights activist. Now, to be clear, I had considered marking everything in red as all a suspect. One cannot simply become a public health advocate unless they are reading from or writing the script for the CDC. Wiki quickly points out that his father was a government attorney and his mother worked for Red Cross and that they were Jews. The other pressing matter here is the fact that Kramer made movies. In 1978, Kramer published a gay book with an even gayer title, Faggots. As you may have already guessed, its plot centered upon the fast lifestyle of gay men on Fire Island and Manhattan. Wiki claims that the primary character was modeled on himself, a man who was unable to find love while encountering the drugs and emotionless sex in the trendy bars and discos. They're setting the stage. While researching his book, Kramer interviewed gay men and visited gay establishments. His conclusions were that gay men were really conflicted with the lives they were leading, adding, and that was true. I think people were guilty about all the promiscuity and all the parting. Kramer had earlier been nominated for an Academy Award in 1971 for his screenplay adaptation of the novel by D.H. Lawrence, Women in Love. The title is somewhat of a misdirection since it actually embraces the proposed love affair between two men after convincing each other to strip down naked in a field and play Japanese wrestling. Perhaps their erotic wrestling is best exemplified by the movie tagline, the relationship between four sensual people is limited. They must find a new way. Its leading lady, Glinda Mae Jackson, actually ended up winning best actress for that one. She, <laughs> she went on to become a British politician in the Tony Blair administration. But in the movie, she expressed her love for a gay German artist, particularly his idea that brutality is necessary to create art. That says it all right there. AIDS is art, alchemically speaking. Her boyfriend, one of the two guys who played sumo in the nude, then trudges off into the snow to commit suicide. In the end, we come to learn that there are women, and then there are men, and that there are more than two ways of love between them. Also, there is a certain lifestyle that goes along with those decisions, which may or may not include suicide. Total predictive programming. Within the March 14, 1983 issue of New York Native, Larry Kramer's paper, 1,112 and counting, was delivered as the alarm that sounds in the firehouse whenever an arson is afoot. It was directed to fellow members of his homosexual community, wherein he wrote, If this article doesn't scare the shit out of you, we're in trouble. If this article doesn't rouse you to anger, fury, rage, and action, gay men may have no future on this earth. Our continued existence depends on just how angry you can get. You will want to take note of the fact that Kramer's rant was printed right next to the picture of a gay man wearing his shirt behind his neck so as to show off his nipples. Kramer's article is played out like literature in Playboy magazine, whereas I'm supposed to completely ignore the nipples, 
and take the journalism on this or that side of the MK Ultra centerfold seriously. Right. Total CIA operation. Kramer further wrote, There are now 1,112 cases of serious acquired immune deficiency syndrome. When we first became worried, there were only 41. In only 28 days from January 13th to February 9th, there were 164 new cases and 73 more dead. The total death tally is now 418. According to the official narrative, 195 of those dead were registered to Kramer's own hometown, New York City. And as of March, 86% of all serious AIDS cases had already ended in death in as little as three years. Why the number 195? Because one promotes new beginnings. Nine relates to the spiritual law of karma, light working and humanitarianism, service to others. It is a town crier's call for leadership. The number five successfully resonates with major life changes. Decisions need to be made. You see how this works? Simultaneously, we are told, suicide was on the rise, kind of like his movie. Also, there was still no known cause for the immunodeficiency virus which had only recently been named. Again, Kramer writes, For two years we've heard a different theory every few weeks. We grasped at the straws of possible cause. Promiscuity, poppers, back rooms, the baths, rimming, fisting, anal intercourse, urine, semen, shit, saliva, sweat, blood, blacks, a single virus, a new virus, repeated exposure to a virus, amoebas carrying a virus, drugs, Haiti, voodoo, flagell, constant bouts of amoebiosis, hepatitis A and B, syphilis, gonorrhea. After almost two years of an epidemic, there are still no answers. Almost two years of an epidemic, the cause of AIDS remains unknown. In almost two years of an epidemic, there is no cure. Why isn't every gay man in this city so scared shitless that he is screaming for action? Does every gay man in New York want to die? Make a mental note of the drugs. We shall take a closer look at those poppers in the next episode. Something else that is interesting to note. Kramer was not convinced that AIDS was merely restricted to gay men. Again, he writes, There have been no confirmed cases of AIDS in straight, white, non-intravenous drug-using middle-class Americans. If there have been, and there may have been, any cases in straight, white, non-intravenous drug-using middle-class Americans, the center of disease control isn't telling anyone about them. You will recall that women in love actress and politician Glinda Mae Jackson expressed Kramer's idea that brutality is necessary to create art, which then followed with the suicide of her conflicted male partner. Total predictive programming. We are now seeing the brutality necessary to create something, and that is through the art of psychodrama. The AIDS pandemic is all an illusion. At the time of the AIDS outbreak, the city of San Francisco was still reeling over the assassination of politician Harvey Milk, another hoax. The date of that PSYOP followed less than two weeks after news broke of the mass suicide of 900 members of the People's Temple. If you read my paper on the Jonestown hoax, 
then you will know that both Harvey Milk and Jim Jones are connected. Ridiculous. On November 27, 1978, it is Diane Feinstein who hears the gunshots and calls the police. It is she who finds Milk face down on the floor, shot five times, including twice in the head. If you haven't figured this out already, our slave masters have long utilized the gay agenda, using the media, politics, and the arts as psychological operations to push it forward into the forefront of our thinking, induce behavioral modification, destabilize humanity, create dependence upon the beast government, 41, 14, 41, 14, 41, deconstruct society before building it up again, that sort of thing, destroy everything if need be. Between milk and the AIDS pandemic, it's like they had no desire to castrate homosexuals all at once. No, they had to do it inch by inch. Let the alchemical juices settle into the meat grinder and simmer in the pot. Oh, and Christian pastors, be sure to keep preaching against butt sex while handing out those ham sandwiches. For the record, I am not actually advising you to do any such thing, as eating pork is an abomination against Yahuwah and breaks Torah. We are simply attempting to iron out our hypocrisy from those who say the eternal law has been done away with via polyandity and yet still pick and choose what they will observe of Moshe. But sex, no. Pork, yes. Moving along on the AIDS pandemic timeline, and we are reintroduced to the mayor of San Francisco. Only this time, it is the person who rushed into the room to discover Milk's body. Diane Feinstein is back. But did she ever really leave? I think not. In October of 1984, Dr. Mervyn Silverman, the city public health director, ordered 14 bathhouses and sex clubs catering to homosexuals to close immediately. There it is again, the number 14. Technically, there were 30 businesses inspected, but only 14 were closed, according to Silverman. Why 30? Perhaps because 30 represents the perfect balance in the cosmic organization. The order came at Feinstein's prompting, as the spread of AIDS came as a result of consuming too much shrimp at the wharf and far too many ham sandwiches. FYI, Silverman is currently the medical director of Planned Parenthood of Kansas. From this we can easily deduce that he enjoys a good slaughter. If he has managed to murder more babies than Herbert Heim, we are not told. We next come upon the best part of the San Franciscan government's initial report, misdirection. The myth is already being established and every bit of it is wrong. Scientists say AIDS. Let me stop you right there. We might better understand that quip by replacing scientists with priests of scientism. But I digress. Let's try this again. Scientists say AIDS or acquired immune deficiency syndrome is spread through sexual contact. Wrong. They continue. Most of its victims are homosexual men. AIDS destroys the body's ability to fight disease. Wrong again. AIDS is not even real and therefore does not destroy anything. The media does not like to make connections. For example, they won't tell you that the left and right paradigm of politics are two wings of the same bird. And here's something else they won't tell you in regards to their bathhouses. Operation Midnight Climax. Sometime in the 60s, 
and as a precursor to the CIA's Hate Ashbury Project, Climax was carried out by the boys at Langley and headed up by George Hunter White, a former OSS officer, as a subproject of the MK Ultra program. And get this, the CIA set up brothels throughout San Francisco and New York City. Recognize the names? Where did the AIDS pandemic begin again? Yeah, those two locations. During the day, White worked the streets as an agent with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in order to keep psychoactive drugs out of circulation. But when night fell, he dispensed his drugs to the unsuspecting clients who were leered into their safe houses, many of whom were prominent citizens. Prostitutes were on the CIA payroll and furthermore given full protection from potential police hassle. The walls of each safe house featured photos of women in bondage, but also mirrors, as in two-way mirrors, by which the CIA could tape each kinky LSD field episode and then blackmail them afterwards. Kind of reminds you of Jeffrey Epstein, doesn't it? And the Playboy Mansion. You will tell me that Operation Midnight Climax was exposed by the media and thusly put an end to. The story was dropped by Seymour Hirsch, a longtime journalist for the New Yorker and born to Yiddish-speaking Jews who had immigrated from Poland to start a laundry business. A quick bio-read on the Wikipedia will show that this guy was frequently used by the CIA to expose their stories. He was the first to report on the My Lie massacre in 1969. He exposed Project Jennifer in 1974, a covert CIA project to recover a sunken Soviet Navy submarine from the floor of the Pacific Ocean. And the list goes on. It was the same year when he dropped a CIA brothel story, though MKUltra wouldn't even begin to come to the surface until 1977. Look, they only put this stuff in the paper for the purposes of predictive programming. And who are they hoping to blackmail today? Perhaps you, perhaps me. They're watching and listening in upon everything. Recording, your every word search, your bedtime activity, especially the kinky. The point I'm trying to make is that Hirsch didn't expose anything. Langley owns the media. Intel used Hirsch to bring their operation out into the open, but only the pieces of the puzzle that they wanted the American public to see because it's all a gaslighting game. This is just another element of MK Ultra programming, but in a society-wide subconscious arena. At some level, the handler has to expose himself in order that the slave can identify and ultimately defeat his slave master. But does the slave really become the master? No, he does not. This is only done in such a way as to split his psyche. The slave master now has more strings to pull. What they're ultimately telling you here is that they own the sex houses, Asian brothels or mustache brothels, and they will do what they want with them. In my next episode on the AIDS pandemic hoax, you will see why this is important. We're moving on now to religious fundamentalism, but only because it is the natural swing of the pendulum. I decided to read Jerry Thalwell's Wikipedia page as prep work and once again, to my absolute delight, I was not let down. His bio reads like this. Fowell's daddy was a bootlegger and an agnostic. His granddaddy, an atheist. 
We are gleaning this information from the Wikipedia, and they just love to throw stories regarding their humble origins in there. Kind of like how Marilyn Monroe was born from a poor Midwest farmer for a mother and an abusive father, when in fact she is directly related to 12 patriarchal signers of the Magna Carta. That is some serious royal breeding going on and no freak happenstance of nature. But it is none of your business, and certainly not my own, when the moral of the story is her humble and inconsequential origins. See what I mean? Then again, Fowell is no Monroe, but his bio is easily decoded. For instance, at 22, he started a megachurch in Lynchburg, Virginia, with only 35 founders, and would go on to become the mouthpiece for a movement called Christian Zionism. That is code word for lawless globalism by Ashkenazi Jews. But why focus on the obvious? They like to slip 22 in there because it designates Fowell as the master builder. Wink, wink. You see, two and two makes four, which signifies a human construct which is fixed and squared. 35 founding members because it is the number of bafflement. The numbers three and five also add up to eight, which is important because we are being told in coded Masonic terms that Fowell was a natural born leader who was initiated into arcane and cosmic truths of the craft, yet fully capable of balancing the two extremes of duality. There are so many nuggets in Fowell's rather short bio. Let's read some more. During the 60s, Fowell frowned upon the Vietnam War, but only because he felt it was being fought with limited political objectives when it should have been an all-out war against the North. So, destroy the People's Army the same way Napoleon and Sherman took the wrecking crew to Tartaria. Got it. He also campaigned heavily against Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement, which was a Zionist operation. But that is because Zionists like to massage both sides of the argument. If you're curious exactly how Fowell's antagonism played out, he teamed up with George Wallace, but also created a wildly successful college called Liberty Christian Academy, which was later described as a private school for white students. White girls were forbidden from dating black boys because that's some naughty business right there. Christian liberals were morally offended while Christian conservatives ate it up. In Emperor Palpatine terms, everything that has transpired has done so according to their design. The Moral Majority was founded in 1978 with the explicit instructions of pushing both politics and culture to the furthest possible corner of Jerry Fowell's far-right vision for an evangelical Christian America. So, Christian Zionism again. On August 7, 1983, some five months after Kramer's article was published, Fowell declared on a nationwide broadcast of Old Time Gospel Hour that AIDS was the judgment of God upon moral perversion in this society and the homosexual promiscuity in the land. As a reminder, the ruling elite throughout history have always utilized the gay gene as a key destabilization tool whenever it has been deemed beneficial. For all I know, spooks throughout modern history like Walt Whitman and Allen Ginsberg were in actuality fake gays, but that is a discussion afforded for another time. Fowell is simply an actor playing the flip of that coin. Continuing on with the bio, Fowell would further claim, 
AIDS is the wrath of God against homosexuals. To oppose it would be like an Israelite jumping in the Red Sea to save one of Pharaoh's chariots. AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals, it is God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. The moral majority was a relatively early supporter of presidential candidate and actor Ronald Reagan. From this we can glean, and indeed Fowell insinuated as much, that Reagan's success was due to his own influences. That is a somewhat silly statement, knowing how all presidential elections are chosen based upon the candidate with the most royal blood and not by vote. But that is not the point of Fowell's mission when in fact he was spinning the narrative within the media construct. Both he and Reagan were reading from the same script. And it goes something as follows. Nearly five years would pass before the pronunciation of AIDS ever publicly left the president's lips. That's an entire administrative term and some change. After initially being diagnosed with AIDS on June 5, 1984, the first lady turned her back on actor Rock Hudson, a close friend of the Reagans. The AIDS crisis had its very first Hollywood A-list celebrity with Hudson's death on October 2, 1985. His attempts to reach out to the White House for help fell on deaf ears. The actor was shunned by the Reagan family. They're all actors, and it's all part of the performance. If Falwell was to be understood and believed, to try and stop AIDS from wiping its victims off the face of the earth, to even attempt and save those infected by it, goes against the intended programming of our better spiritual nature. This is God's wrath. Best get out of the way. In short, we can deduce the following. Falwell was a scumbag shepherd with a clean haircut and a suit leading his flock into the balancing arm of the left and right construct of Zionism and Freemasonry. It was Fowell's pay grade, as the master builder, to counterbalance the homosexuality psyop and deliver the illusion of choice while the alchemy does its work. People desperately need a shepherd. They'll listen to the only voice they know. Naturally, Fowell's religious right followed. On the 20th of May, 1982, 24-year-old Rebecca Carmen Torino Flood lost an extravagant amount of blood while giving natural childbirth to a healthy pair of twin girls. That very day in Harbor City, California, Becky's frail condition required a blood transfusion. In time, her loved ones would have to reconcile the fact that the young housewife was diagnosed with the AIDS virus. As Kramer rightly suspected, nearly a year later, Becky's condition was kept hushed from practically everyone, even her family. Despite an anointed handful of church friends who quickly stuck it through at her side, the religious community as a whole tagged her very kind and abomination. In-laws feared how they might be perceived in Ronald Reagan and Jerry Fowell's America, particularly Becky's sister-in-law, a doctor. In the end, her family listened to greater evangelicalism. Becky was nearly abandoned. Even her daughters, only then coming into consciousness, were kept from her. As her condition worsened, the young housewife was desperate. A visiting sister recalls wheeling her out of the house amidst a desperate cry for help. Becky fought her sickness almost totally alone. And then one day, before the 80s came to a close, she lost the battle. On the day in which she died, 
Becky's few remaining friends claim to this very day her husband was out working on his car. At five years of age, all Sarah Carmen Flood wanted to do is see her sick mother, hold her sick mother, speak to her, but mostly form a memory of her sick mother, any memory at all. And yet the shame and embarrassment which the family felt in light of her condition necessitated that the two, actually the three of them, be split apart. As the 1980s trudged on, tears pursued the kindergartner to school each day and then followed her back home, and more importantly, displaced her throughout the nightly intervals in between. The young girl, finally coming to age, had no one willing to even speak with her about the trauma. If only the embarrassment of what had happened could just go away. To this very day, no living member of Becky's family who denied her then has yet to express any remorse. If Becky Carmen Torino Flood contacted the HIV virus, then she must have done something to deserve it. Becky Flood had sinned, and God cursed her for it. That, or God was negligent, blame him. The only crime committed, though at close evaluation there were indeed several of them, is that the woman I would meet less than a decade later and ultimately come to love has little to no memory of her mother, nor is the subject easily broached. In the months, even the years after we were married, it was not uncommon for my wife to break down into gushing tears over Jerry Falwell's vision for America. In 2011, despite nearly a decade of occasional lamentations to mark her only lasting memorial, and even now, her lips tighten and her eyes swell at the recollection, I finally stood for the very first time over Becky's grave. My wife was not yet 30 years old, and on the day when we finally met, neither was her mother. The missing years, the loss of age, the omnivorous waste of it all. Nearly a quarter of a century of physical, emotional, intellectual, religious, and apathetical boycotting the very soul who was swallowed up by the grass, cursed eternally with the gay plague, and yet, in a seemingly cruel twist, would not even be numbered among them, finally overcame me. As one who had somehow circumnavigated the AIDS crisis altogether as a child, nearly all I could muster, as a mighty sledgehammer slugged away at my lungs, was a nonsensical, almost breathless prayer. Dear God, they listened to the lie. It is the lie that killed her. But more on that next time.